We're going to be working our way now through the book of Acts. Uh, if you haven't been around for a while, just let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're in the middle of a five-year study through the New Testament. So the way that we're going through the entire New Testament in five years is to take one chapter every single week. Some weeks, like this week, that's pretty doable. Uh, you know, 26 verses, I can do that. Next week, it's going to be pretty tough. Uh, we'll have 47 verses. There's other times where there's 60 verses. There was 80 verses in the Gospel of Luke a few weeks ago. But uh, anyway, it, it's... Uh, So a little different than the typical sermon, we're just working our way verse by verse through it, almost like a running commentary through these passages. Uh, But when we get to the book of Acts that we're starting today, uh, we're going to see the gospel beginning to spread now outside of Jerusalem. So the gospel of Luke was focused specifically in Jerusalem, it seems, as Jesus ends up being crucified there, resurrected there. But from there, his missionaries, his disciples, his apostles will be sent out and bring the gospel to the, word, now, to the world. Now, anytime we approach the word, uh, we want to ask ourselves a couple of questions. The first question is, what is God saying to me in his word? The second question is, what am I going to do about it? And I'm going to continue to bring these questions to your mind because we don't want this to be just a momentary preaching. Uh, we're going to preach in this moment, but we want you to take this with you into your own discipleship, that the word of God should be speaking to you. So you want to be paying attention as you've read through this. Uh, hopefully for some of you, you had a chance to read through Acts chapter 1 every day this week, and so through that process, had a chance to start to glean some things, to kind of till up the soil of your heart, and the Spirit of God is going to take the Word of God, do amazing things in your life. Uh, But as you ask yourself these questions, you're preparing to be not just hearers of the Word, but also doers. So, Acts chapter 1, it says, the first account I composed, Theophilus. So we have to remember that Acts is actually part 2 of a two-volume set, Luke and Acts go together. Now, the, none of the books actually tell us who the author is. Uh, we've kind of taken that through church history that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. Um, but these two books go together, two separate volumes written, some people believe or many people believe, as a legal defense for the Apostle Paul. And the reason they believe that is you see the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in his final imprisonment in Rome. And it's just kind of like leaves it off like right there. And so there's this belief that Luke and Acts were written together as some sort of a a legal defense for the Apostle Paul or, or maybe just trying to tell the story of who he was and who it was he was serving so that the Romans would recognize that Christianity wasn't so much a threat to the throne of Rome. It was just a religious expression of the people. It was a defense of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't trying to overthrow the Roman government. He was just preaching that he had found the Messiah. And so that's how some people look at this book, and I think that's probably a pretty accurate. For me, though, I really like to to focus in on the guy who he was writing to. It says, the first account I composed, Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is somebody we don't know who he is historically. What I find most fascinating about Theophilus is his name means friend of God. And so, yes, this might have been written as a legal defense, But I would say beyond that, for us today, if we're a friend of God, this was written for us, for our instruction, so that we can see the history of what God was doing in the world through the Holy Spirit. This is the same way, by the way, the Gospel of Luke started out, my dear Theophilus. It's the same guy receiving both of these letters, if you will, both of these documents to be preached. And so he continues on there in verse 1, the first account I composed Theophilus. 
about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had the Holy Spirit given, by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so uh, he, he's going to summarize again what was in the Gospel of Luke. We see in those first couple of verses there uh, all about what Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, speaking of the apostles... He presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. Uh, the first piece of this is just an apologetic. It's just a very simple apologetic that Jesus actually did resurrect from the dead. And how do we know he resurrected from the dead? Eyewitness accounts. He showed himself by many convincing proofs. Now, all of these people saw him alive. The same people who saw him die, saw him buried also saw him resurrected. And Paul will make a big point about this in 1 Corinthians 15. That's going to come up over and over and over again. But it's important for us as believers today to understand this. I think there is this, this tendency to not know how to defend our faith. The simplest way for me to defend my faith is, I know Christ rose from the dead because all the eyewitnesses say he rose from the dead. Paul says, Christ died for our sins and was buried, rose on the third day and appeared to Cephas, the twelve, then to many, to James, the apostles, and then finally to Paul himself. He just kept appearing to people over and over and over again. It was obvious that he had come back from the dead. Now, these aren't the types of things that you can fake. You can't just convince 500 people in one meeting. Whereas some people believe that it was just a big hallucination. I'm sorry, hallucinations don't work like that. You don't get your, uh, everybody doesn't get the same hallucination. Everybody gets their own, right? With this, everybody saw and heard the resurrected Jesus Christ. They could touch him. He was physically there. It was a proof that he had resurrected from the dead. Well, it says that after his resurrection, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. He was speaking to them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. So 40 days, this is like a, a pretty major time where he's teaching his disciples, he's teaching the apostles about the kingdom of God to come. But at the end of that 40 days, he gathers them together and he gives them this command not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. And so we saw this in Luke chapter... Uh, uh, 24, verse 49, Jesus said, the promise of the Father is coming. He's talking here about the Holy Spirit. This idea that the Holy Spirit is coming to them is something they're supposed to wait for in Jerusalem. So he wants them to go to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to understand that this is an awkward thing. The Holy Spirit had been working 
with Jesus all along, right? The Holy Spirit was present in that sense. We see the Holy Spirit active in the Gospel of Luke. At the end of Jesus' life, in John uh, chapter um, uh, 16, Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And yet now he's telling them they have to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see that there's some different effects of the Holy Spirit that are being played out here. That certainly the Holy Spirit had been with them in ministry, but I believe what happened in the Gospel of John, for the first time, the Holy Spirit indwelled the believers. And I believe that's been consistent from that day forward, that the Holy Spirit indwells believers, that everybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ has this as a mark of their inheritance on them, that you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is God, lives in you. But this is something different than that moment. There's this waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and to come with power to baptize them in verse 5. It says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Now there's going to be not just the regular indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but there's going to be this momentary power of the Holy Spirit, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being witnesses. You remember when Jesus said, they'll drag you before governors and rulers, but don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will speak through you? You'll be witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we saw this a little bit in the Old Testament. Occasionally, it would say that the Holy Spirit would empower somebody, but those were these very kind of temporary empowerments. That's going to continue on uh, with the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. There's going to be this power behind their ministry. Paul talks about that in his own ministry. He says, I didn't come to you with convincing words. I came to you in the Spirit. I came to you in power. There's a power of the Holy Spirit that's driving the ministry of the apostles as they go out to spread the gospel throughout the world. This wasn't just this kind of group of guys that just happened to be really good preachers and really motivated and they had really good skills and they were great at checklists and they could make sure all this stuff happened. No, this was an empowered movement by the Spirit who is God. That's what's happening here. So Jesus tells them, beyond the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that they received in the Gospel of John, there would be this power that would lead them to be witnesses. They're supposed to wait in Jerusalem until that happens. He tells them it won't be many days from now. Um, what we actually can know that they didn't know is that it would be about seven days from there. Uh, we can figure that out by understanding that Jesus uh, was crucified around the Passover, and then it says when he resurrected three days later, he then taught for 40 days, and we know that the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. So if you take the 40 days he taught plus the three days he was in the tomb, you're at 43 days, leaving about seven days. So about a week from this moment where Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, they're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the book of Acts. You're going to see his apostles, his disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and do the work of ministry. I believe that the Spirit of God is still powerful and active in his people today. 
I believe that each of us who's a believer in Jesus Christ indwelled by the Holy Spirit is being conformed to the image of God, that we are uh, going to bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We're going to have all the fruit of the Spirit growing in us. But beyond that, I believe that the Holy Spirit gifts us for the purpose of edifying and building up the church. And I believe at times the Holy Spirit empowers us to use whatever gifts he's given us for the advancement of his kingdom. I don't want any of us to walk away from an understanding of the book of Acts where we feel like the church was built on the power of man. No, the church was built on the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the power of the Holy Spirit working through the people of God to do the work of God. That's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. Uh, we also see here in verse 8 what will become the outline for our book. Uh, it starts in verse 8, the Holy Spirit empowers the witnesses, and they'll first witness to Jerusalem, that's chapter 2 through chapter 7. Then they'll spread out to Judea and Samaria, 8 through 12, and then ultimately they'll go to the remotest parts of the earth, 13 through 18. You're seeing that kind of outward growth of the church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth. The other thing we'll see in the gospel of Acts, or in the book of Acts uh, that I think was, is interesting, at least for me, uh, is you'll start to see this movement from Jews to Gentiles. The focus primarily initially is going to be on Jewish believers, but starting with the uh, apostle Peter, he's going to get this amazing vision from God. The gospel is going to begin to spread to the Gentiles. And then in chapter 9, Paul will get converted, and he will become an apostle to the Gentiles. And so the rest of the book is going to be focusing on moving beyond the church. Maybe they would start out in a synagogue, but they would move beyond that to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And why is that important for us today? Most of us are Gentiles. <laughs> There's very few of us that were actually Jews. No, the gospel was intended not just... For the nation of Israel, the gospel of Jesus Christ was intended for the whole world. It was intended to go out to the entire world, to the remotest parts of the earth. And this is that connection back to the Great Commission. You saw it in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. You see it also at the end of the gospel of Luke, where uh, Tom was preaching last week in verses 46 through 48, where he says he's going to send them out to preach the gospel. It's this same idea, it's this same picture played out. This is the Great Commission. This is what God wanted. He always wanted his gospel to spread all throughout the world. And that's what we're invested in, involved in right now. Uh, you might not think of it in those terms because you live in Cheyenne, but we're part of spreading the gospel to the world, this part of the world, and then through missionaries to other parts of the world. We're invested in that kingdom work as believers, as individual Christians, as disciples. We are involved in the great commission of Jesus Christ. Verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven 
will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Uh, this is what's called the ascension of Jesus Christ. And I, uh, I try to imagine some of the scenes in the Bible sometimes because it's just got to be fascinating to have been there, to be in that moment, right? Jesus is talking to you and then all of a sudden, at least the way I envision this, he just starts to float up into the sky. Oh, just like floating up into the sky and everybody's watching him like a kid that's lost their balloon. Jesus just floating up and they're just like, and then he disappears into a cloud and they're all just still looking up and two angels sneak up behind him and go, what are you looking at? (laughs) You see, there was this moment where they needed to understand that Jesus wasn't going to be physically present on earth anymore. They needed to see that this was different. Uh, Up until this time, during the 40 days, Jesus would appear and disappear to his disciples. He would be there for a while, then he'd be gone, then he'd show back up again. And he would do it in these pretty amazing ways. He would walk through walls, it seemed like. It would just be like they would be locked in a room and he would just appear there. So it was powerful in the way he did it. But they needed to see that this was different. This was a transition that was going to happen here. There was going to be a change that was going to happen. That from this point forward, Jesus, it would be, in verse 11, it tells us, Jesus would be in heaven, but it's okay because he didn't leave us alone. Again, we go back to the Gospel of John in John chapter 14. I'm going to leave my Holy Spirit with you. They needed to see almost as if it's a a change of command from physically following Jesus around the countryside to now being led by the Holy Spirit throughout the world. They, They needed to kind of see that separation there. And so these two men, I'm going to assume angels, but these two men in white clothing say in verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. The second thing, first of all, he's in heaven. The second thing they wanted us to know is that when Jesus does return, it's going to be in the same way. He'll be coming from the clouds. There's other things about the ascension that are important, though. In John 14, he tells us that when he ascended, he was going to go prepare a place for us in heaven. You see, Jesus has work to do. He's preparing a place for us to ascend to someday. Now, we also see in the book of Philippians that in this moment, God was exalting Jesus to heaven. He was drawing that attention that this is, in fact, his son, He was making it clear that this was the Messiah. As Jesus went up into heaven, he was being exalted by the Father. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us from this point forward now, he serves as the high priest mediating on our behalf between us and God. But he's now at the right hand of God speaking on our behalf, speaking up for us, his people. But here on earth, the disciples, the apostles, us, We are now led by the Holy Spirit. There's a change of command that happens there. There's a change of the focus of the ministry that happens there. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, And Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer 
along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So now they go back to the upper room. They're returning to Jerusalem, but why are they returning to Jerusalem? Jesus said, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit. So they're just being obedient to the last thing Jesus told them to do. Yes, they're supposed to spread the gospel to the world, but not quite yet. They're not supposed to do it in their own power. They're supposed to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So they go now to the upper room. They're back in Jerusalem. It tells us that it's a, a Sabbath's day journey, uh, about two-thirds of a mile, 2,000 steps or 1,000 double steps is what they would call it. But just understanding the Mount Olivet is just outside of the walls of Jerusalem and you would go through the Kidron Valley and be on the other side. Uh, it's not that far away where Jesus ascended to go right back into Jerusalem When it gets together, when they all get together, it tells us who's there at this point in the upper room. And it lists 11 of the 12 disciples because Judas Iscariot is no longer with them. He's betrayed Jesus and he has died. But it adds to the list beyond those disciples, there were the women who were ministering along with Jesus. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is actually the last time she gets mentioned in Scripture, And then also the brothers of Jesus. Now this is fascinating that Jesus' brothers were there and that his mother was there. Remember that earlier in Jesus' ministry, his family thought that he had lost his mind. (laughs) So in Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 6, there's these instances where they were trying to collect him. (laughs) Like, we got to go get our, we got to go get this guy. He's going around telling people he's the Messiah can't believe this. Well, now they believe. His family believes. Why? Because they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. They saw him die. They saw him come back again. They believe now. So the family is there with him. The brothers, four brothers mentioned in the book of Mark, as well as some sisters that Jesus had. Um, That might feel awkward to you if you grew up in a Catholic church. Um, because the, the idea within the Catholic Church was that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Um, it's just not bound in Scripture. Uh, that's a, an extra-biblical tradition uh, that has led to, I believe, just some pretty uh, unfortunate teachings uh, where people see her as the mediator between God and man. Uh, that's not biblical at all. Uh, we don't pray to or through Mary. Uh, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, that he's the mediator between God and man. I don't say that to be offensive to anybody that had a, had a Catholic upbringing, but this is the danger of when tradition overrides the word of God. Jesus clearly had relatives. He had clearly brothers and sisters because the scriptures tell us that. And you have to kind of do these uh, mental gymnastics to get beyond those things in scripture rather than just letting the word of God speak for itself. And so they would say things like, well, those weren't really his brothers. They were just cousins. Not really his brothers and sisters, just cousins. Just near relatives, but not that near. No, that's not what the scripture says. This was his family. And they now believed that he was the Messiah. And I love what they were doing there in verse 14. They're waiting, but they're waiting with an attitude of oneness of mind and devotion to prayer. And you're going to see this play out over and over in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you'll see it in Acts chapter 4. You'll see that the disciples were all together when Paul and Barnabas were set apart for ministry. They were in prayer. It's just going to be kind of this constant thing. So yes, they're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
but they're also going to be devoted continually to praying. If you're looking for anything that the modern church needs to improve at, it's just being together and praying. It's just being together and praying. Simple. It's so simple, but it's so important. You know, we have a couple of things that we do as a church for our prayer ministry, um, but they're not really the most popular things we have in church. I don't know if you've noticed that. Now, we do have every Wednesday night, if you're here at church on Wednesday night, we take 10 minutes out of our service and, and we just pray. And so just wherever you're sitting in your seats, you're just praying in that moment. It's an opportunity for us to just pray. Then on Sunday nights during our third service, uh, my wife leads a prayer time. But it's just a handful of people. I'm not trying to guilt anybody into coming to that. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that. But I do think this is something that we need to be more focused on. Continually devoted to prayer. Being together in one mind. For us as believers... Now, I think there's a lot of prayer that goes on that's not official, if that makes sense. It's not a pre-planned schedule event, but I know when the church staff gets together, we pray together. I know when the elders get together, we pray together. I know that many of you have home fellowships in your homes and you pray together. I know many of you join together in prayer with your families every day. So I know that there's more prayer going on below the surface that's maybe not visible, but it's just something that was so important to this early church is that they were continually devoting themselves to the concept, to the purpose of prayer. And they were of one mind, which I think is fascinating. I love how that, how that says that. Remember Jesus prayed for his disciples that they would be one? Uh, Gail Herwin, a, a pastor that I like to listen to sometimes, says this is the great unanswered prayer of Jesus, that his people, his disciples would be one. But there were moments of that oneness, that one mind. Think about that. All gathered together, but they had one mind, the mind of Christ. One singular purpose. And in this moment, it was to pray and to wait for the Holy Spirit. Waiting is not something we're very good at either, or I'm not. Verse 15. At this time... Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem that in their own language that field was called Hekaladama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, let another man Take his office. Well, this is an interesting moment. Peter, first of all, Peter stands up in this group of 120 or more folks that are all gathered together in this moment, and he's going to begin to take some leadership. And remember that this was kind of a natural expectation of Peter. Jesus had told him that on his confession of Christ, the church would be held, uh, the church would be built. 
Uh, He gave him the keys to death in Hades. It seemed like Peter was naturally a leader. When you go through the list of the disciples, Peter is typically the first one listed. So it just seems like it was a natural understanding that he would lead them initially. But the thing that he does that I think is a little bit weird, or at least for me and as a couple of other people I've talked to this week as they read through this chapter, he says that this is a fulfillment of Scripture, that somebody had to take the place of Judas. Now, here's one of the things that you probably do when you study the Bible, but when they quote the Old Testament, I like to go back and read that section of Scripture to, to see where they got this. So what's weird about this, uh, when I read there out of Psalm 69 and out of Psalm 109, these are the two Psalms that he's quoting, there is no bit of that would have made me think of, of Judas at all. Not one bit of it. I would have just read right through those things and never once thought about Judas. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't a natural interpretation, at least in the way we're used to interpreting the scriptures. It wasn't something that would just stand out as being obvious. So how is it that Peter came to this conclusion that these scriptures were a fulfillment? Well, I have a couple of ideas here. I think the first is this, that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, who he breathed into them, would remind them of the words that Jesus had spoken. But the other thing that happened at the end of the Gospel of Luke that you would have seen last week, Jesus showed them in the law, in the prophets, and in the Psalms all the things that were pointing forward to him. And so my guess is that Jesus explained how in Psalm 69 and in Psalm 109, these things referred back to Judas. And so Peter now is seeing these things, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the teaching of Jesus. He's seeing these things as instructions for him to walk forward. So he's going to make this determination, again, led by the Spirit, led by the Scriptures, that somebody needs to take Judas's place. Somebody needs to take the place of Judas. So he's going to come up with a plan to do that. But he's going to use these two verses to kind of lead him in that direction. Now, it does say some interesting things about Judas there. Um, Ultimately, what he was guilty of was guiding those who arrested Jesus. But in one gospel, it tells us that Judas hung himself. Here it says he fell headlong and burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Uh, In one gospel, it tells us that he threw the 30 coins back to the Pharisees. But here it says he bought a field. So there is some confusion there. I I think it solves itself pretty easily. I think Judas did hang himself. And either the rope broke or they had to cut him down at some point. And when he was cut down and he hit the ground, he burst open, as it says here. And I think that the religious leaders that he threw the coins at did in fact buy this field using those coins that were his. We're told historically that that field then became a place where they would uh, bury foreigners. It became a place to to bury those who were not Jews, to bury Gentiles. But it's known now as the field of blood, uh, which is not really a great name if you're trying to sell a piece of property. But Ultimately, Judas was to be replaced as a fulfillment of Scripture. Now, that's important for us to remember because there's going to be a whole brand of people within Christianity who are going to argue with Peter on this point. Peter spoke out of turn, they'll say, no, Peter never should have done this. He never should have come with this process to replace 
Judas. It should have never happened that way. If he would have just waited, God would have naturally replaced him with the Apostle Paul. The scripture doesn't tell us that anywhere. All it says in Acts is that this was a fulfillment of the scripture. And then it's going to show us this process by which they're going to uh, replace Judas. So verse 21 shows us how Judas is going to be replaced. It says, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who had accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbath, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven. So, Again, this does cause some concern for people, but Peter kind of established this idea of, of who was going to replace Judas. I think he refers back to the instructions of Jesus again in Luke chapter 24. Jesus said, you will be witnesses of all that happened up to my resurrection. And so Peter says, well, then it has to be, if it's going to be a witness, it has to be somebody that was actually there the whole time, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, from his baptism, all the way up to his resurrection. And so they ask around, and they check out all the disciples that were there, and they find in the whole group there were two guys that met those requirements. Uh, this one guy with a bunch of names, Joseph called Barsabbath, who's also called Justice, and then this other guy, Matthias, they're both equally qualified, so how do we choose which one is the witness? They do something weird here. They cast lots for it. They rolled the dice, basically. They drew straws. Picked a name out of a hat, basically. And that just doesn't feel very... Holy Spirity. <laughs> Like, wouldn't it just feel better if it was just like this aha moment where the voice of God said, I choose Matthias. That would feel a little bit better for us, right? We'd feel more comfortable with that. And again, that's why some people aren't happy with this, this idea that they ultimately just cast lots. But I don't want you to look at it as they just cast lots. That's not what happened here. First of all, they were all of one mind. Second of all, they were continually devoted to prayer. Even as they were casting the lots, they were praying. Beyond that, they chose qualified candidates, people who actually fit the bill. People who were there from the beginning until the end. And then, yes, they cast lots at the end of that. But I need you to see that's actually biblical. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. You cast the lot into your lap, but the Lord determines the outcome. That's right, all those times you lost gambling, it was God's plan for you. This is why I just don't. <laughs> the few times I tried to play around with it, I just, I just lost like crazy. I tried to do the slot machines one time. I was on this work trip, and this guy just was like, we've got to do the slot machines, we've got to do the slot machines. So we're up in, what's that place in South Dakota? Deadwood. Well, hmm. Just kidding. 
And so he wants to do the slots, and I'm like, I got 20 bucks. When my 20 bucks is gone, I'm done. And so I'm doing the nickel slots, and in 15 minutes, I'm out of 20 bucks. And this guy wanted to stay, so for the rest of the night, he just keeps handing me money. Just handing me money. I think I spent like 200 bucks of his. At the end of the night, he wins 100 bucks and buys me a steak dinner because he's a big winner. I'm like, dude, you lost over and over and over tonight. That's a $500 steak dinner there. But I've just determined that God does not want me to gamble because I lose every single time I do anything like that. Anyway, this feels like a gamble to us, but I, I think Peter was just relying on this proverb that ultimately God is in control even of that motion. And so they were continually devoted to prayer, and so they selected people that actually met the qualifications. And now they had two in which they couldn't decide between, and so they trusted the Spirit. They trusted that God would bring the outcome. Not to freak you out, but uh, I've had this plan before. So uh, years ago, we were looking to hire somebody at our church. I'm not going to say what position it is because I want to give it away. But uh, we gathered together all the candidates, and we removed all the ones that we felt like just didn't meet the qualifications, and we had narrowed it down to three people. And it just felt like it didn't matter which of the three we chose. Whichever one of these three we chose, it was going to be a great choice. They all three met all the qualifications. We felt like all three of them could do the job. And so I told everybody that was on the hiring board, I said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to take all those names, and I'm going to put them in a hat. We're going to pray, and then we're going to write down, each one of us on a separate piece of paper, we're going to rank them, one, two, three. If you were the only person in charge of hiring this person, what order would you hire them? And if we don't all agree at the end, I'm just going to pick a name out of the hat. I got some strange looks, by the way. <laughs> Getting a few now, even. It was kind of cool, though, because everybody that was on the hiring board made their list of all three, and everybody on the hiring board listed all three of them in the exact same order. So we had a oneness of mind, so we didn't have to move on to pulling a name out of a hat. But I was fully prepared to do it. All three were qualified candidates, and at this point, we're saying, God, you choose. I'm not saying that should be a staple in your life of making decisions, but when you have two right options, it's not that crazy, is it? It's way better than the other option I tell people all the time when they come to me and they have these big decisions to make in their life. And I'll just say, well, let me make it. <laughs> if it fails, you won't have to blame yourself. Just blame me. It'll be fine. That's not the way to go. But no, if we're going into a decision and we are prayed up and we remove everything that is disqualified and we come down to a couple of options and we can't decide between the two, I don't think it's too weird to just trust God in that moment. And I, I think we would be biblically held to this. I think we would find that as an option. I don't think it comes up often. But I think we can trust God in all of those things. Sometimes you just need an answer. And I'll be honest, when I pray, and I pray for God to answer my prayers, it almost never comes in this audible voice. Sean, I want you to do this. I always imagine it's going to be James Earl Jones' voice, but <laughs> that's how I imagine it, but that's never how it comes. It never works out that nicely for me. 
It always becomes this process of elimination of the things that are clearly outside of the will of God to narrow it down. And then if I have the choice to go left or right, but neither one is sin, then I can just go left or right because neither one is sin unless God has specifically revealed one to me. That's kind of what happened here. Neither one of these guys was a bad choice. They had been with Jesus from the beginning, and they had prayed about this. And they agreed to it. Now that's all going to change next week. They truly are going to be led by the Holy Spirit in some different ways from here on out. Truly, they will hear clearly from the Spirit from here on out. But in this moment, this is what God allowed them to use to bring about who was going to fulfill that place of Judas. One interesting thing that I would point out, uh, today is the day that the church typically celebrates the day of Pentecost, which will be the day that they receive the Holy Spirit, 50 days from Passover. For us, we're going to join with the Greek Orthodox churches and celebrate it next week because that's where we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. So make sure that you're going to read ahead into Acts chapter 2 every day this week. Again, we're trying to take not just a sermon, a momentary sermon, but we want to build this into your discipleship. So just read through Acts chapter 2 every day over the next week, preparing your heart and the soil of your heart uh, to receive the word next week so that God can begin to speak to you personally through his word. But the other thing I would ask you guys to do this week is have a conversation about Acts chapter 1. Share what God said to you in his word, whether it's at at, at the dinner table with your family or at break time at work with some coworkers or more specifically maybe a home fellowship or somebody that you're trying to disciple. But just get in this regular habit of reading God's word, hearing a sermon in God's word, and then discipling through God's word where you start to take the things you hear and you put them into practice. Be disciples who make disciples, that you guys would be invested in this idea, that you're not just here to hear the word, you're receiving the word so that you can give the word. Does that make sense? Well, thank you guys for bearing with me through this sermon. I got attacked by the allergy monster this weekend, and uh, every word I've said today is like through this like muddled sound in my ears. It's just the head that's just like full of stuff. None of which came out during the sermon, so that's exciting. (laughs) Sheila asked me during worship, she's like, "Uh, would you like me to send a box of Kleenex up there with you? I'm like, hmm, maybe, but blowing your nose into a microphone, not the most attractive look, to be honest with you. So Uh, anyway, guys, just so thankful that you're here with us. Let's go ahead. We're going to go to the word and to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that every time we open your word, you have things that you want to say to us. Father, for a number of us, uh, we need to be reminded that it's your Holy Spirit who's doing the work of ministry, and it's the same Holy Spirit that was working through the disciples who is indwelling us right now, who empowers us to do the good works you've prepared for us in advance to walk in. Father, for some of us, we need to be reminded to, to pray before we decide. Father, for others, we need to be reminded that you are in heaven right now, mediating on our behalf, preparing a place for us, or that someday we will be with you. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to each of us today, the things that we need to hear, 
so that we can change the pattern in our life. Father, would you allow your word to speak to us, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close in worship as we do every Sunday, but I'll make myself available and some of the other elders will be up here. If you have needs, we want to pray for you in those needs. If you want to know more about the the gospel, we'd love to share that with you as well. But let's go ahead and stand together in worship.